Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Established in 1987 and celebrating its 35th anniversary in 2022, the National Women in Media Collection documents the roles women have played in media fields as employees and leaders, as well as the subjects of news coverage, how those roles have altered over time, and how attitudes of and towards women have changed. The collection includes records of women's organizations and professional and personal papers of women journalists, editors, book authors, newspaper and magazine publishers, media company CEOs, journalism and mass communication educators, press secretaries, and public relations personnel, as well as radio, television, film producers, and personalities. To celebrate this important anniversary and to coincide with the opening of the new National Women in Media exhibit in the Winokur Family Corridor Gallery at the Center for Missouri Studies, the Our Missouri podcast dedicates its summer series to the women featured within the collection and exhibit, as well as the journalists, scholars, archivists, and librarians who have pioneered and preserved its materials. The next step for the National Women in Media Collection are to bring together manuscripts, videos, audio, and personal papers centering on the period 1964 to today. The enormous changes for women across the world in that 60-year period prompts archivists, librarians, historians, and scholars to bring many new stories and subjects into the collection from diverse media industries, institutions, and innovators, as well as underrepresented groups of people. Our guest today is Dr. Kimberly Voss. She earned a PhD in mass communications and journalism from the University of Maryland, and presently she is a professor of journalism at the Nicholson School of Communication and Media at the University of Central Florida. She is the author of several books, including The Food Section, Newspaper Women in the Culinary Community, Politicking Politely, Well-Behaved Women Making a Difference in the 1960s and 1970s, and Reevaluating Women's Pages, Journalism in the Post-World War II Era, Celebrating Soft News. She is the co-author of Mad Men and Working Women, Feminist Perspectives on Historical Power, Resistance, and Otherness. Welcome to Our Missouri, Dr. Kimberly Voss. So to begin with, uh, talk about where this scholarly interest in women and journalism really originates for you. I was born on the second to last day of 1970. Um, and so that was the end in large part of the women's pages of newspapers. So I had never heard of them, even though women's pages in Metro newspapers in America went back to the 1880s uh, and continued to about 1970. These sections um, are left out of most journalism histories. And I think it's because so many newspapers don't wanna acknowledge how women were marginalized, um, were kind of allowed to be journalists um, in other beats like news or sports or editorials. Uh, so it didn't really exist when I was in doctoral school uh, at the University of Maryland. It was the first time that I started reading about women's pages in journalism histories. And one of the things I found um, a little strange as a historian and former journalist was that these sections were described as fluff or unimportant, but no one ever explained why or really looked into the content of those sections. And that's not something that journalism historians tend to do. We tend to um, probably over-research elements um, to find evidence, to find you know, original sources and documents. Um, and so 
I really wanted to figure out what was really in the women's pages because there was no real history that explained what these sections were other than to say they were unimportant, which certainly didn't seem to fit the journalism histories um, of the time. For the most part, you know, women were doing important things, sometimes in the shadows and in smaller ways, but I found it hard to believe an entire section that existed, um, you know, for nearly a hundred years was that unimportant. Now, of course, this is a series that really looks at the development and history and, and legacy of the National Women and Media Collection at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Uh, as a scholar, as a researcher, how did you first encounter that collection and, and really become aware of what was inside of the materials? Oh, the materials um, have been invaluable to me, um, and I've been looking at them now for more than 20 years. It really was about finding um, these original sources. About the time I was looking at the women's pages, the Washington Press Club Foundation had done some oral histories, um, and these women's page editors proved by explaining the kinds of stories they wrote, the battles they had with management, their work within the community, about how important their sections were. Um, and there was a mention of the National Women in Media Collection, which was started by Marjorie Paxson, who was one of the women who was interviewed for that oral history project. Um, so when I learned about this in my doctoral program from Dr. Maureen Beasley, uh, I wanted to make sure I got down and looked at those resources pretty quickly. And how did you really utilize uh, this collection, its materials in your research? Well, what are some of the collections? What are some of the, the elements within your projects that come from that collection? Sure. Um, so I started coming down to um, Missouri to look at the collections when I was in Maryland, um, and I would come down um, once or twice a year. Then I got a job at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, which is just outside of St. Louis, um, and took me less than two hours to get to the archives. And so I was there a lot. Um, so I really got to know the connections in the different collections. Um, so specifically, um, I wrote articles about Marie Anderson, Dorothy Journey, Marjorie Paxson, Eleni Epstein, whose papers are all individually um, in the archive. And it, it was really amazing because these women wrote letters to each other constantly um, and they had both sides of their letters. And so it was almost like looking at a journal um, or telegraph. I mean, it was really amazing. And they kept everything. So I had their personal letters. I had their clipbooks, their commentary and things that they had um, about other media issues. And it was really, really eye-opening because it was not fluff or insignificant what these women were doing. In fact, they were very forward-thinking, um, but they didn't leave behind the housewife that might not be ready to leave the home. So they had this um, amazing ability to talk about both kind of the public and the private sphere and not lose their readers, but maybe um, pushing them a little bit forward to think about things in a different sort of way. Uh, Gloria Biggs was another um, collection I went through at length. And this would often be, you know, hours, sometimes days at a time to go through these boxes again and again. But probably the biggest part of the collection was the Penny Missouri Awards. The Penny Missouri Awards were started in 1960 um, through a partnership with the, um, the JC Penny Company um, and the University of Missouri's Journalism School. And the idea here was to raise the, um, the stature of the content to make these sections um, more significant. And so it was the only awards that women's pages could really get at the time. There was no award, for example, through the Pulitzer Prizes. They weren't allowed to be members of the Society of Professional Journalists. So this was kind of a big deal to have these awards. 
And what was very special in addition was they would have workshops. So they would come in for three days to get their award and teach each other about better women's page content, things you could do um, to raise um, the value of the content. And there was also numerous letters. At the time, um, Paul Meyer was the director of the program and he wrote these women constantly. Um, and it was a professional relationship. It was also very friendly. When these women would come in for their workshops, Paul and his wife, Mary, would throw parties um, in honor of these women. And so most of the letters back and forth began, Dear Paul and Mary, and they traveled to visit each other. And so it was really, um, truly an amazing resource, um, those Penny Missouri Award letters. Now, we talked a little bit about the, in the origins about your interest in, in women's pages and, and the subject matter and engaging with, with various elements of the collection. As, as an author of, of many, many books on the subject matter, how has your research sought to not only cover women and their connections in journalism, but also look at that period, you know, the 1940s, we'll say up into the, the mid to late portion of the 20th century there in terms of women in journalism? It's hard to underestimate how significant World War II was for women's page journalism. Of course, most men uh, went off to war during World War II, and some of these women's page editors were still in journalism school in college. And so they got to run newspapers, you know, as students, something they never would have been able to do if uh, men were home. Uh, then during the war, quite often those women's page editors could leave the women's pages for the first time ever, barring a few small things. So they got to cover all these other topics. They got to cover courts and cops. Um, they got to write front page hard news. And so they had these opportunities that never would have happened besides World War II. One of my favorite stories um, is that there was really only two things women couldn't cover during the war. Because again, women made up almost all the newspaper staff. They could not cover football or executions, which I thought was just a fascinating thing to choose that they couldn't cover. But after the war, um, they were forced back into the women's pages. Uh, Marjorie Paxson, whose papers um, are in the collection, she documented having to sign paperwork that she would agree to go back. And these women did go back into the women's pages, um, but the women's pages were changed significantly. Um, the kinds of things they'd never written about before because they hadn't been exposed to that kind of news, they covered at length. One quick example um, was child abuse. As years went on, uh, these women had seen what was happening um, in emergency rooms, um, in court systems, where it wasn't considered a serious issue. And uh, they made a point of writing about it pretty consistently until lawmakers noticed and responded to that. So they, they quite literally changed the definition of women's news. The women's pages were largely known as the four Fs, family, fashion, food, and furnishings. And those things are important. Um, and covering those things gave them opportunities. The food editors and the fashion editors traveled internationally regularly. Um, and they also got to know their communities. They helped define what you wore, what you ate, um, how you thought of your family. So those things are a pretty big deal. Um, they also began to cover more progressive news after the war, particularly going through the 1950s into the 60s. Uh, the Commission on the Status of Women um, started in the early 60s out of the White House federally, and then eventually every state and several cities had a commission on the status of women, and their jobs were to say, how are women being treated in the workforce? Um, what are they being excluded from, discriminated against? It was women's page editors that covered all of those stories. 
I'm intrigued by by this uh, the section of the newspaper, the women the women's pages, as we're talking about there, covering uh, a, a variety of issues. And certainly, after uh, going through your your books and everything, I I began to look at newspapers and really piece them apart in some ways to see how they are constructed and and what they are talking about. Talk about the the cultural significance in a lot of ways of not only we could say newspapers in general, but especially of the society news and of these women's pages. What is so significant about them? Sure. Um, and I should um, say to begin with that these women knew they were marginalized and they knew that they didn't have a strong role at the newspaper. Every newspaper I studied, and there's been hundreds now, would not allow the women's page editors in the newsroom in any way. So they would have to have their offices um, in a different room and almost always on a different floor. The theory was these women couldn't handle cursing by the newsmen. Um, it would have been fine. I've read their letters. They would have been fine. Um, but it really was a matter of male editors not reading their sections, which gave them a lot of freedom. So they might have been marginalized or segregated, but they took that to be a kind of power so they could do whatever they wanted to. Again, most male editors didn't read the sections. Um, and in other situations, they knew that if they would get in trouble, their readerships were so high, they couldn't get fired or really reprimanded in any sort of way. But along with women's clubs, they took on significant causes. Most kindergartens and libraries are in our communities because of women's pages and women's clubs partnerships as well as juvenile justice systems, um, in later years, domestic violence policies, rape hotlines. Those were all things that originated in something that seemed so non-threatening in the women's page. It seemed um, very almost genteel, very feminine, but these women kind of um, found a way to balance both because they also knew there were causes in their communities that the news section wasn't covering. So they made sure to do those kinds of things. And in doing so, they uncovered problems there was community, uh, pressure community. And so all of a sudden, lawmakers would do something about it. They really did make a difference. But what was different about the women's pages and often the women's clubs is it was done behind the scenes or kind of in the shadows. And so they didn't get much of the credit that was deserved to them, but they certainly changed their communities. They changed things at their own newspapers and the place that they lived, um, as well as training women's page editors from across the country to do a little bit better too. I'm thinking about, as we get into the kind of the mid and the late 20th century, second wave feminism, uh, the growing women's rights movement that comes out of that post-war period after World War II. How are the journalists that, that you're looking at and, and that are kind of the focus of a lot of your work, not only covering key events, key leaders, but also perhaps looking at the movement itself? How is that movement impacting their own industry and the media industry? I'd like to think of the women's page editors um, that I look at in the 40s, 50s, and 60s as a bridge between the waves. Because these women never stopped caring about the same topics, right, that began with the suffragettes and continued in the women's liberation movement. They were always interested in these issues. Um, they dealt with um, sexual harassment themselves. Um, they knew they were being paid less than everybody else. They knew they couldn't get jobs in kind of the more significant sections that were either better paid or had better hours. So they were kind of very well aware of these concepts. And so when they were writing about these things, um, it was a reflection of what they experienced, but also what they saw in the communities. And part of it was the commission on the status of women and women's clubs. But they 
made a difference by shining a light on something that no one else was shining a light on, certainly not the news sections of, or the editorial sections. Um, they really were this bridge between the two. What was very hard for women's page editors was not just that they didn't get credit for what they were doing and, and letters prove that they knew they wouldn't, but in this era of burning things and protesting, this was not who they were. And they got excluded then from women's liberation groups and um, the kinds of women that would have been great sources for them. In fact, um, several women's page editors lost their jobs at the end of the women's pages, which are championed by women's liberation leaders. And so, for example, Marjorie Paxson, who helped start the collection, she lost her job twice um, as a women's page editor when the newspaper would get rid of it and then replace it with a, a male edited lifestyle section. So she was well aware that she had given up a lot in her career for women's issues only to lose her job twice because of it. Now, who do you see as a, as a, a journalist, a media figure from this post-World War II period uh, that you think maybe gets overlooked, maybe deserves a little more attention, perhaps a, a focus of historical research upon them? It's almost amazing how often I find a woman who seems um, like she has done the most amazing things ever, <laughs> beloved by her newspaper, by her community, and there's almost no record of her. And that's why I love the collection so much, because finally there was a place that wasn't just about clips, but about how the women interacted with each other. Um, I mentioned Gloria Biggs earlier, and she was the first female editor at Gannett. And her the letters that she received from women across the country, from lawmakers, proved just how incredibly important she was. And she didn't hold the position very long um, at Gannett, uh, or at her newspaper, then went to Gannett um, in leadership positions. But she changed really what Gannett, which is, of course, um, does USA Today and Florida Today and such across the country, she changed policies to make things better for women. Um, the other journalist that I think is incredibly important um, is Vera Glasser. Vera Glasser um, was, it went to Washington when the thought was that women couldn't work anywhere other than the women's pages. And she just started her own news outlets in DC. And she would contact um, other uh, newspapers and sell her columns and sell her news stories. Um, she's most famous for um, President Nixon's second press televised press conference. And again, it's almost all men in the room. There's pictures that kind of show, you know, all these men in all these suits. And she raised her hand and she asked the president, when are you going to put women in your cabinet? And at first they all laughed at her, including the president. President laughed at her and even said to her, well, would you like to be in my cabinet? But that one question ended up going over the wires and was in newspapers across the country. And she continued to kind of push in that way, was able to do things because she worked by doing kind of hard news questions, but they ended up in the women's pages. All of her work was in women's pages. So suddenly you had readers thinking about women's rights in a different sort of way. Um, she also wrote a column called Offbeat Washington um, with another political journalist, um, Alfina Stephenson, that really also changed because it showed that women could go in and do political columns um, like no one else had really ever done before. Information about both of those women is also in the collections. Finally, as we look back on, on, on some of your previous works and certainly highlighting them, but talk a little bit about upcoming projects that you're working on as well. Sure. Um, one of the goals of my research is to highlight soft news. So if you kind of think of soft news as features, um, as the kind of things that aren't full of conflict and breaking news, things that wouldn't 
uh, end up on the front pages. So I've written books about food journalism and fashion journalism um, to kind of raise the stature of soft news, which I think sometimes gets overlooked or belittled. So my next project is about the advice columns that ran in the women's pages. Um, and these advice columns were fascinating, um, having started to go through them. They really established societal norms, um, what was respectable for women's roles, for desegregating neighborhoods, for relationship issues, workplace issues. And this was the time, if you can kind of think of the Dear Abbeys, um, that kind of um, Ann Landers, Every local newspaper also had a section that was kind of hyper-local, if you will. So it was in the women's pages and they would get letters from people in the community asking specific questions. Um, sometimes the advice columnists would give their own feedback, you know, that's what they thought. But just as often, um, they would start a conversation, almost like early social media. So the question would run the newspaper and then other readers could send in letters in response. So they could say, you know, yes, it is good that this is happening or it's bad that this is happening. Um, and then usually the advice columns kind of at the end join in and be like, well, you know, this is really kind of what's going on. But this was a real connection between the community and the newspaper. And I think sometimes that's been overlooked in the women's pages. There were people that not only read that section every day, were invested in it. Um, there were women who were looking for a recipe. They would call the newspaper, you know, there's pre-Google, you know, before you could find out what that favorite recipe that, you know, you ate at a restaurant was, for example. They wanted to know what was acceptable to wear, um, you know, particularly if um, as tradition was kind of changing, you know, everyone used to kind of dress the same and as things kind of changed in the 60s, the expertise of a fashion editor was huge. And the same kind of thing happened with these um, advice columnists. Uh, they weighed a lot of power um, and some were experts, you know, there were hints from Heloise, there was uh, medical, um, there was, you know, Irma Bombax is kind of an, uh, a humorist as an advice columnist. Um, so I'm looking at that section and I, I do have to say, I've never been disappointed when I've looked at these different topics in the women's pages. Um, going back to your first question, this wasn't fluff and it wasn't insignificant. Um, the topics were more important than they were given credit for. And the women that wrote about them um, time and time again were very impressive. Um, and I should also mention they were also very good friends with each other. And so that was very fun in the collections, looking at their letters back and forth because it was a personal and professional connection for them. And again, all of a sudden, you know, by the early seventies, it was gone. And so it's, it's awfully nice to document um, a part of women's history that is still too often overlooked. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kimberly Boss. Certainly. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>